everybody! Welcome back to another awesome, exciting, fun, and chaotic episode of My Second Self and I. My name is Matt. There's another voice that sometimes shows up that I call Alex. He's kind of the co-host. He's just here to help keep me on task. He is the voice in my head, after all. Hot Girl Summer is officially over in this show's universe, but unfortunately, in the real world, nine feet to my right, it's still hot AF outside. I don't know about the rest of the country or the world, but where I live, it's almost back to school time, so I figured what better way to usher in the new school year than with a month-long history lesson. I have been all over the pre-1900s in my time machine searching for my lost left sock that has crabs on it, but while I was doing that, I also did some research on some interesting murders that took place that we get to talk about. I guess for this month's theme, I'll call it um, time travel tragedies, just because I like alliteration. How's that sound? Triple T? Alright, cool. And look, I know Hot Girl Summer just ended, and we just talked about five very scary ladies all in a row, and it's been done so many times at this point that there's not a whole lot of new information about it, but I'm ready for it to be spooky season already. This girl's story gives off mega spooky season vibes, and another thing that I didn't plan that just kind of happened to work out is that this story also happens right around this same time of year, but back in August of 1892. Alright, fine, I should have probably waited a week to make it an even 131 years, but I'd forgotten a lot of the stuff I used to know about Lizzie Borden, and I wanted to refresh my memory, so I'm taking you all hostage. Get in the time machine right now. Let's go. And don't look at our faces. We don't want you to ID us later. Yeah, don't look at us. We'll do all the looking around here. Look, I can handle this, Alex. Go away. Bro, I'm just trying to help you Dude, No, we did this a couple of weeks ago. I oh, got this. Why not? I'm part of this, too. Dude, just because it's my show. Hold the mic. Come you on. don't even have a physical Dude, body. You can't hold it. I can help make it You better. couldn't even make a sandwich. Sorry guys, co-hosts. You're still my hostages though, for like 30 or 45 minutes. Okay, take two, let's go! Don't worry though, I promise I won't hurt you. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the old jump rope rhyme or have at least heard the name in passing. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41, whatever, yada yada, cool, whatever. Okay, cool, so just a couple things with that. That's around double the actual count of axe blows on their bodies, and it wasn't actually an axe, rather, twas a piece of string! No, it was a hatchet. Basically, just like a smaller axe. The murders did occur in the correct order in the rhyme, though, and it had been a while since I'd read up on anything Borden-related, so I was kind of surprised at what I read. I mean, the rhyme says she took an axe, but did she really, though? We'll go over everything I've been able to find and see if I can come to a logical conclusion about this story, but there's not a whole lot of new information to glean from anything. It hasn't been definitively solved in 131 years, and I doubt that an indie comedy podcast is going to be the thing to break anything earth-shattering, but, you know, that's not what this show's really about anyway. This show is about learning new shit as we go and laughing at everything we can along the way. Two things I think the world could always use more of is laughter and free education. Which is why this is a comedy show about true crime. And it works, because the truth is often stranger than fiction, and I don't really make fun of the victims. They had it bad enough without some asshole with a microphone roasting them from the safety of a studio somewhere. The other stuff in the story is all fair game, though. Dumb cops doing dumb cop shit, crazy people saying and doing crazy things, interesting characters and people, including real-world examples and some shit that I make up. I hope mine are interesting. There's tons of ways to turn an otherwise horrible story into an enjoyable experience, and that's why I do it this way. Okay, now that that little disclaimer's out of the way, I can get on with it. First of all, this lady has the audacity to be born all the way back in 1860 on, guess when, 
almost my birthday again, July 19th, 1860. Just getting here used up so much of my battery in the time machine that it's going to take at least 30 minutes for it to recharge. One neat thing about my time machine is that it isn't tied to one geographical coordinate. I can travel through time and from place to place with it. In the present day, I'm in Texas, but now I'm all the way over in Fall River, Massachusetts. Kind of cool, right? Time machine, yes cool. Weather outside in July in Massachusetts, no cool. It's hot as fuck. Lizzie, not Elizabeth, it's actually Lizzie, also had two sisters, an older sister Emma, and for a brief window of time she had another sister named Alice, but she died when she was a toddler from hydrocephalus. Alex, what is that? Go! Water on the brain! Correcta! Or at least correct enough for the judges panel here. Her mother, Sarah Borden, died when Lizzie was just three years old, still very much a tiny people, and her father, Andrew Jackson Borden, not that one, was a man of many talents, despite not being very well liked. He began as an undertaker and soon moved on to much bigger and better things as a kind of a real estate mogul. He made and sold furniture as well as caskets, then became a property developer, directed several textile mills, owned a lot of commercial property, was the president of a bank and a director at a financial trust, when he died, his estate was worth around $300,000 in their money, which is close to somewhere between, like, I've seen a lot of different figures, like 7 to 10-ish million dollars in our money, which is not bad. Despite his own wealth and social status, as well as it being reasonably affordable and not too difficult to modify into an existing structure, their house had no indoor plumbing, no running water, no toilets, no electricity. Nothing of the modern amenities the rest of the people on the hill were accustomed to. I didn't make all this money by giving it away or spending it on things we don't actually need. This money goes back into one of my banks or toward a basic need, and nobody needs a toilet. Just an hour ago, I took a dump behind a tree. No porcelain necessary. But father, by that logic, we don't need a maid to clean the outhouse either. She isn't in there when we do our business. The Bordens will shit outside, that's final! That's a completely factual reenactment. Lizzie and her older sister Emma had a very religious upbringing as well, as most other people did back then. Wasn't a whole lot else to do, especially for a high school dropout like Lizzie to do in those days. Not like they were allowed to have jobs. Women can't have jobs back then, at least not yet. But that was one of the things that she was working on, well, instead of going to school. She was very heavily active and involved in lots of church activities, including... Teaching Sunday school to recent immigrants, was a secretary treasurer for the Christian Endeavor Society, involved in other movements like the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, and was a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. I think that's a thing where they take, like, gift baskets and things to sick people in their homes or hospitals. In fact, that's why she dropped out of high school in her junior year, just so she could go do all of that stuff. Just, just all the productive, positive Christian shit there was to do. Lizzie said, I'm fucking doing it! Let's go, God! I got this for you, God! Amen. She probably didn't say it like that. She was also maybe engaged at one point to a young dandy named Orrin Gardner, whom was a modiste, which is an old-timey word for fashionable milliner or a dressmaker. And a milliner is someone that makes ladies' hats. You know, those big wide-brimmed things that signal an overly modified and complicated cocktail is about to be ordered in your section. You're inside! Why are you wearing a hat? There's also been a few theories put out that maybe Andrew was abusing Lizzie in some way. While it's possible, I guess. There's just not enough to go on, really, to really make it a talking point beyond telling you that there were theories. 
if such a thing did happen, they likely wouldn't have talked about it to anybody else back then, and the methods for verification were crude and unreliable at best. Just wanted to let you know that. Lizzie, unlike her father, was also very popular and outgoing, not nearly as asocial as she's often portrayed to be in films and TV. Although she was also a little klepto, stealing shit from the store all the damn time. Daddy didn't really care, though. He had the money. He said to just bill him, and he'd pay for whatever she stole, so put it on my tab, I guess. Can't take this little shithead anywhere. If you remember, I mentioned that Lizzie's mom died when she was only three years old, but I didn't mention that her father remarried shortly thereafter. He married a woman named Abby Durfee Gray, and the kids did not like her at all. They had a pretty contentious relationship their pretty much their entire lives, and that may or may not have played into the murder part later on. There's also one other person in the house we need to introduce before we go, and her name is Bridget Sullivan, the live-in housekeeper. Probably because of some intense nativism, Abby and Andrew both called her Maggie, which was the name of the previous maid who was not Irish. Bridget Sullivan was an Irish immigrant, and in being Irish, she gained the ire of the rest of the household, or at least Abby and Andrew. As if we could stand to call you by your real name as if we were equals with an Irish or probably something weird like that. It is fucking wild the types and amounts of hate people can justify to themselves. This is, ugh, that's such a weird thing that, ugh, so weird. Bridget said that oftentimes Lizzie and Emma wouldn't even eat meals with their parents. They thought Abby was a gold digger and wanted as little to do with her as possible. Which the girls may have been totally right about, at least in some form. One of the big reasons they didn't get along with her is that Andrew had been gifting real estate to members of her family instead of spending it on his two daughters. They were unhappy with the squanderings of their inheritance, and that always breeds contempt. But it wasn't all gold diggers and rampant nativism around the house. When Lizzie wasn't out doing productive Christian shit, she liked to tend to the pigeons she kept in a little roost she'd built in the barn. I wonder why pigeons? Surely there had to be a more exotic bird she could have kept, right? But then again, Andrew was known throughout the community for his frugality, so she probably kept pigeons since they were numerous and complimentary if you catch one. They were what? They're free and there's a lot of them. Jesus Christ, Alex, get it together, man. Keep up. I don't know if they were pets or just livestock, but in either case, in May of 1892, Andrew took it upon himself to murder each and every one of them. That's right, taking a left turn. This week's story is actually about bird murder, or birder. Who cares about human bodies? We gotta find out where all these feathers came from. But seriously, whether it was to prevent the neighborhood boys from coming around and hunting them, or if they were just that night's dinner, Andrew went in there one day and slaughtered the entire coop. Some sources say he rang their necks, another one claims that he chopped all their heads off with a hatchet, which sounds like it would be a difficult thing to do. A pigeon's head is really small. I can't imagine they'd sit still. How would you make that work? Do you hold it down, I guess? Like, yeah, I guess. you could. Just, they're small. You could hold it down and just... And then boom. Dinner. Whatever. Some of you might be scratching your head right now. You can eat pigeons? Yeah, but don't. They're Just buy chicken instead. That's what they taste like anyway. Although, bacon-wrapped pigeon filet with some jalapeno. Pretty tasty. I'm not a big fan of the feathers, though. They get stuck in my teeth. So if you don't know me already, I love to cook, so this seems like a good place as any to throw in a little segment about what foods became relevant around this time. It's also a good spot for a future ad break. 1890 brought us the Lipton Tea Guy, the first aluminum saucepan, the Knox brand of gelatin, maybe peanut butter? Seems to be a lot of conflicting information about that. 
The National Peanut Board says it was John Harvey Kellogg, but I've seen like five different names from right around this time. Also, quick super fucking weird thing about the Kellogg's guy. Cornflakes were a part of an anti-masturbation campaign because he was a staunch advocate for abstinence of pretty much anything cool. Alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, meat, not exercising, being bored, sex, jerking it, flicking the bean, being whipped, whipping, cakes, pretty much all the stuff that makes life worth living, and most of the rest of the stuff on this list. He was a super weird guy who wrote an anti-sex book while on his honeymoon and never fucked his wife, left us with a box of flavorless cereal with a cartoon rooster on the front that cost way too much. But hey, at least he was also in favor of eugenics. He's a really interesting read if you get time, but it's... Yeah, just heads up. Other honorable food mentions, Baby Formula, the Nathan's Hot Dog Guy, and KFC Guy were both born. Wash Your Sister Sauce, and of course Coca-Cola, complete with the cocaine! Maybe. Alright, moving back on. Back at the house of Borden before the fall, the sisters Emma and Lizzie get into some sort of argument with the fam and take an impromptu vacation over to New Bedford. Maybe the Kellogg's guy had something to do with it, I don't know. We're out of cornflakes! The urge is rising! We have to go! Only the bland overpriced crunch of a bigot's breakfast cereal can quench the frothing in my loins! Did he really think that would work? <laughs> yeah, he did. Something about it not tasting good at all was supposed to suppress the desire to, uh, wake the neighbors. If anybody that made a mark in history that needed to get laid, it was probably that guy. They spent over a month in New Bedford, most likely doing a bunch of positive, productive Christian shit, and returned just before the murders took place, except Lizzie went to go at, like, a boarding room for a couple days before going home. I guess she was still mad at them. Arriving with them, well, not with them, but he came around the same time as they did, and is the uncle of Lizzie and Emma. His name is Mud. No, his name is John Morse. My name is Mud. That's Prime's song, be cool about it. The, John is there to visit and conduct some business with Mr. Borden. They returned about a week before the murders. John arrived on the 3rd of August. On the 2nd of August, Lizzie makes her way down to the local apothecary to purchase some prussic acid. That, if you don't know, is the fancy term for cyanide. She said she was going to use it to clean one of her coats, though I'm pretty sure it doesn't have any kind of, like, antiseptic properties. And I haven't been able to find the exact nature of argument that sent them to New Bedford on that extended vacation, but it might have had something to do with this. Andrew had given one of his rental properties to Abby's sister, and Lizzie and Emma were pretty pissed about it. Why does she get a house and we don't? We're your daughter's dad. What the fuck, man? Andrew, thinking quickly, in an attempt to make up for this, gifted his two daughters their childhood home, which was kind of more of a duplex that had later been converted into a single home, but... Interestingly, didn't know this, since the two women were yet to be wed, there's no wedding bells in the house of Borden, society dictates that they were basically not allowed to move back into the home as it was unethical for an unmarried woman to live it alone. So instead, they pulled off the greatest business deal of all time. They got the house basically for free from the literal bank of dad, I think they gave him like a dollar, and after finding out their new property was essentially worthless to them, they sold it back to the Bank of Dad for the tune of about $5,000 hairs. And if you want to give me a dollar, uh, paypal.com slash mysecondself and I. Oh yeah, let me fill you in on why I bothered with that little segment about food earlier. They had a pretty varied diet full of all sorts of potentially delicious things, but they didn't really have a way to store it after it was prepared. They didn't have any kind of refrigeration or freezing technology yet. Shit, they didn't even have AC. They just gotta raw dog it in the summer, which has gotta be brutal. 
any place close to the water is just going to be humid as all get out too, so you might as well just wrap yourself in a wet towel and stay inside. It's the same thing. So the food being left out could be a very possible reason for Abby, Andrew, and Bridget being violently sick to their stomachs for a few days leading up to the killings. Abby had been to the doctor the day before because she thought it could be poison, given her husband's status in town. It wasn't unheard of that someone might try to, you know, poison him, but it was more likely that they just ate some bad fish or something. So Morse got there on August 3rd, 1892, and slept in one of the guest bedrooms. He ate breakfast the next morning with Andrew, Lizzie, Abby, and Bridget, then left at around 8.48 to go buy some ox and visit his other niece in Fall River, and would be back for lunch around noon. Abby went upstairs to go clean stuff, despite it being Lizzie and Emma's chores. Emma was elsewhere that day. She was out of the house visiting some friends. Then Andrew Borden leaves right around 9am to go for a walk and to have a business meeting at one of the banks that he owns. I'm off to my president of a bank job for a business meeting about bank stuff. I'll be back later. Bye! That leaves only Abby, Bridget, and Lizzie in the house over the next hour and a half. And Bridget was sent outside to wash the windows after throwing up most of her breakfast. Why does that matter? Don't you hear the music? There's treachery afoot! At some point between 9am and around 10.30am, Abby was the first to be killed. She was thought to be facing her attacker. Whoever it was caught her on the side of the head, just above the ear, with a hatchet. She falls to the floor, twisting as she falls, which causes her to land on her face, bruising her nose and forehead. Then somebody takes the hatchet to the back of her head, somewhere in the ballpark of around 17 more times. That would have been a literal bloodbath. Whoever that was would have just been absolutely drenched in blood. Andrew came home from his president of a bank business meeting at 10.30am, but the door was jammed, so he had to call Bridget to come open it for him. Bridget, come open the door, please. I'm locked out. As she's doing this, Bridget says she hears something coming from the top of the stairs. When Andrew asked where Abby was, Lizzie said that a messenger had come by with a summons for her to visit a sick friend. Andrew says, all right, cool. Listen, I'm tired. Those bank president business meetings are a surprisingly good workout. I am pooped. And then he lays down to take a nap on the sofa, still wearing his boots. That's a good nap. Oh, you ever just lay down for a minute and accidentally fallen asleep? Those are the best kinds of power naps. I'm accidentally more energetic! Woo! <laughs> I'm trying so hard to keep my energy up for this. All Andrew needed was a quick 20 to 30 minute power nap to recharge his batteries. Just a quick little snooze before he's ready to tackle the rest of the day. And the house is totally quiet. Lizzie's doing her thing somewhere. Bridget just finished washing the windows up in her room on the third floor, probably cleaning something. And suddenly, Bridget hears Lizzie calling. Maggie, come quick! Father's dead! Somebody killed him! Does this house have three floors? I don't think I've ever seen a house with three floors that wasn't a ridiculous mansion. I'm not certain exactly how Lizzie said that either. It might have been like how I said it, but it could have also been just loud and matter-of-fact. Like, Maggie, come quick! Father's dead! Somebody killed him! I don't know. He was struck 10 or 11 times with the hatchet, and this is pretty metal right here. One of his eyes had been cut cleanly in half, indicating that he was probably asleep at the time of the attack. Yeah, I don't think I want to be awake for that. Let's talk about what we know so far. We know that Andrew was very wealthy and owned a lot of property. He held a lot of status in town, but was not a very well-liked man. Abby wasn't very well-liked by the sisters, but only one of them was in the house at the time. The maid also may have harbored some resentment for the Bordens, but she was either outside washing windows or up in her room cleaning. 
So the only other possible explanation is that the ghosts of all those birds in the barn that Andrew killed formed themselves into a single giant pigeon ghost called an Infinity Pigeon that attacked the Bordens with razor-sharp ethereal ghost talons. The Bordens need an exorcist! And I know just the right person for the job. Perpetually happy ghost hunter and cat owner, Benjamin Samuelson! Hey guys, Benjamin Samuelson here. I heard about the tragedy that happened over in Fall River and I just wanted to weigh in and tell you what I think about it. I've been in the ghost hunting business for 20 years now along with my kitty cat co-workers Trinity and Carbuncle. I first encountered the Infinity Pigeon around 8 years ago while on a ghost hunting trek through the Catskills. I didn't know how to handle such a dangerous creature at the time, but it gave me an idea for a new product so you don't have to worry. The creature itself, quite a bit larger than a regular pigeon, they're much closer in size to a big dog. The trap itself is quite ingenious actually, I call it the Valentine. It's actually just a regular dog chew toy that I've integrated a UV light into, as well as an EMF dampener. That way it can't just dematerialize as soon as you touch it. Then you just throw that in the direction of the Infinity Pigeon, and it's only a matter of time until it spots the Valentine device and is rendered completely immobile. Then you're free to escape. They're frightening, but very easily distracted. But I'll tell you what I'll do. If you call within the next 48 hours, I'll throw in the attachable Jaybird device absolutely free. It acts as sort of a range extender and flashlight to go with the Valentine, and they honestly work way better together. So don't wait. If you're being plagued by an Infinity Pigeon or any other kind of ghost, call me, Benjamin Samuelson. If I can't solve it, no one can. Good friend of mine, Benjamin Samuelson. He's always a fun guy to talk to, so I like it when he has a new product to tell me about. And I'd get to tell you about it, too. So what do we do now? Andrew is slumped over the couch, hacked to bits, while Abby is upstairs in very much the same condition. The doctor who lived across the street, Dr. Bowen, had come over and pronounced the pair dead at around 11 a.m. And now it's time to summon the police. I don't have that spell. They arrive and begin the investigation, but it doesn't net them a whole lot of physical evidence. It's mostly circumstantial and kind of flimsy at best. Initially, Lizzie dodged police's questions and contradicted herself, often giving the officers strange answers in response to their questions. First, she said she heard a groan or a scraping noise or maybe like a distress call before entering the house. She had apparently been outside in the barn looking for a fishing lure. Two hours later, she changes her story again, saying that she heard nothing when she came back in the house and she didn't even realize anything was wrong. Okay. She stuck with the summons to see a sick friend story when asked about Abby, but then she thought, you know what, maybe she's back by now. We should go upstairs and check. So upstairs they go, dot dot dot, they go and they check and holy shit do they find Abby in pretty bad shape up there on the floor. The pictures of this you see are in black and white, but I think you can just vaguely see a pool of blood underneath her. Andrew's photos look just like a frat party the next morning. He was still wearing his boots in the photo, but there's not much else to see. And they also never found the note that Lizzie said she had received. Interesting thing about Lizzie's behavior here, she was very calm and collected. Maybe she was just in shock but it was kind of an unexpected thing for her to be acting that way, and it sort of irritated the officers, but beyond that, they didn't really press it much further than that. They also didn't check her for bloodstains. In fact, they noted that neither Bridget nor Lizzie had any blood on them at all. So what the hell? Nobody has any blood on them? Both ladies are oddly calm about a brutal axing of the home's elders, and the cops seem like they're just going through the motions. And also, another interesting thing, I've reconciled with my earlier demons about a three-story house realizing that Bridget's room was in the attic, and since Abby was on the second floor of the house, the moment Bridget came out of her room to go anywhere, she would have seen the body. Just something to think about. 
Another big mistake the police made was not doing a proper search of Lizzie's room. They didn't bother to look that closely at anything because Lizzie said she was feeling ill. Could be true. Could also be that thing that suspects do to distance themselves from the immediate investigation so they can reorganize their thoughts and come back later. Meanwhile, down in the basement, they found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected to be the murder weapon since the break on the handle looked the most fresh. Also, everything else in the basement had a pale static layer of dust and basement built up on it, but the broken handle and hatchet head looked like it had dust put on it, so it didn't quite match with the rest of the other tools. It would almost appear shiny compared to everything else down there. You've seen what I'm talking about, right? Kind of like a ceiling fan with only one blade cleaned off? Yes, exactly. The other four were covered in dust and shit, but the fifth one has been clearly tampered with. But, instead of grabbing all the potential murder weapons and evidence, they just looked at it and said, Yep, there's some axes over there. Okay, let's go, boys. And then they just fucking left it there. Don't need any of this stuff. Fucking unbelievable, man. Later that night, August 4th, Lizzie's friend Alice Russell comes over to spend the night while the police are camped out watching the house outside. Alice Russell was one of Lizzie's closest friends and neighbors. She came over to kind of provide Lizzie some comfort. One of the posted officers saw both women going down to the cellar with a lamp and a slop pail and saw both women leaving the cellar about 15 minutes later. Then Lizzie came back down later all alone about 10 minutes later and may have been doing something at the sink. They had some pretty poor visibility from the yard in there and I guess maybe I just don't understand how their house is set up. Did the cellar have running water but not the rest of the house? Like I don't get... Why is there a sink down there if there's no water in it? Like, I don't get that. Moving on. The next day, August 5th, John Morse, who'd slept there that night, decided he wanted no more part of this bullshit and tried to leave, but an angry mob of people with pitchforks and torches kept him from making it too far off the property. I don't think they actually had pitchforks and torches. Police came by a little later on to do a more thorough search of the house, and they found the axe handle, but that's about it. They didn't take it. Later on that night, the mayor, for some reason, and an accompanying officer, it must have been a slow day that day, he and an accompanying officer came by to inform Lizzie that she was the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's deaths. By the way, you're totally a suspect in this. Okay, bye. I hope the mayor talks like that. The next morning, Alice had come over again to check on Lizzie, but this time she said she saw her tearing up a dress in the kitchen. Lizzie claimed that she had got paint on it. Could that have been something other than paint on that dress, maybe? Oh well, too late now. She tore it up and burned it without the police having ever examined it. We'll never know. At the inquest for her hearing on August 8th, she had been taking morphine that she'd been prescribed, which, of course, caused her behavior to be quite erratic. Her story changed multiple times again. This time, she was first reading a magazine when Andrew came home, then she was ironing, then she was coming down the stairs, and also would just refuse to answer questions, sometimes even if it helped her. She was coming down the stairs... Abby was dead before Andrew was, and she was upstairs, so that should have been something, like a clue to somebody right there, but nope. Three more days go by, and on August 11th, she is finally arrested and sent to jail. That inquest testimony, by the way, may have also caused some of her friends to not believe in her innocence anymore. You start changing your story like that, and the court of public opinion, pretty hard to sway. The grand jury begins hearing evidence on November 7th. She's indicted on December 2nd. And the trial begins about six months later in June of 1893. You can't really have a case like this and have the trial in the same town. So they move it over to New Bedford on June 5th, 1893, almost a full year later. I guess even back then, courtship moves painfully slow. 
Prosecuting attorneys were Hosea M. Knowlton and Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Defending was Andrew Jennings, Melvin Adams, and for some reason, the former governor of Massachusetts, George D. Robinson. But wait, there's more? Another axe murder took place five days before the trial. Bertha Manchester was found hacked to death in her kitchen. While similar to the Borden murders, the police eventually figured out that this one was the work of a Portuguese immigrant named Jose Correa de Melo, but there wasn't any link to the Bordens as he was not in Fall River that day. It's two L's in his last name, I think in Portuguese that's still the L sound. If anybody who listens to this speaks Portuguese, chime in on the YouTube comments and let me know if I got that one right. And really, when you think about it, Bertha Manchester's murder was similar to the Bordens? I mean, how different can one axe murder be from another? Unless you hit, like, different part of the body, but it's an axe murder. They're gonna be similar at least, right? Anyway, a big point of discussion in the trial was that the axe handle was not convincingly demonstrated as the murder weapon. They argued that the killer must have removed the handle because it had been covered in blood, which would make sense. Then one officer testified he'd found a handle nearby in the basement, but another officer said they didn't, which is all useless and contradictory information because it doesn't matter anyway since they didn't take any evidence from the fucking house! I don't know why I yelled right there. When Alice Russell... God damn it. When Alice Russell takes the stand, she mentions the day when Lizzie burned the dress, but again, the defense never challenged it. Lizzie even being at the house was also a big talking point. Bridget said she'd left her downstairs at 10.58 a.m. Lizzie said she'd been out to the barn for at least 20 to 30 minutes. Hyman Lubinsky and Charles Gardner testified that they saw her leaving the barn at 11.03. I guess they're her neighbors. It only gave me a name, nothing more. Then at 11.10 a.m., Lizzie calls Bridget downstairs to tell her that somebody murdered Andrew. A 12-minute window of Lizzie being out of the house, which was corroborated by neighbors, leaving Bridget inside, who somehow didn't hear the attack or notice Abby's body splayed out on the second floor for everyone to see. Hmm... What do you want? Excuse me, little kitty. You can get out of here. There's a cat in my lap right now. Then for some reason, Andrew and Abby's skulls were brought in as evidence to show the courtroom just so they could see how bad it was. That's brutal and awesome. <laughs> Lizzie fainted the moment they were revealed in the courtroom, as you would expect. Like, seriously, why the hell would they do that? You can't just unload a couple cadaver skulls on an unsuspecting jury. Then they brought up the cyanide thing, but the judge ruled that it was irrelevant because the druggist didn't actually sell it to her because she didn't have a prescription, and he thought it might have been used for nefarious means. The jury then deliberated for about an hour and a half, ultimately leading to Lizzie being acquitted due to a substantial lack of evidence. Sweet, dude. Nice. That might sound all well and good for Lizzie, but there was going to be quite a bit of aftermath after the trial. First, some good news, though. She and her sister Emma divided up the fortune left to them in their father's estate and used it to procure a proper house with indoor plumbing, along with the rest of the aristocrats up on the hill. Another interesting thing. Since Abby died first, the inheritance was never filtered down through her family's attorneys. It just went straight to Andrew and then on to Lizzie and Emma. I'm pretty sure is how that worked out. There was, however, a big settlement for Abby's family, but the Borden girls got the lion's share of her estate. As you might imagine... Lizzie's social standing wasn't worth much after all of that. She was essentially the town pariah. While she was acquitted of murder, like I said earlier, the court of public opinion doesn't give a shit about technicality. And what about the rest of the people who were in the house? Could Bridget have done it, or have at least been in on it? What about John Morse? He was considered a suspect for a time based on his, quote, absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for Abby's death. 
That's usually a sign that somebody's lying when they explain things like that. But again, not enough to go on just based on that. I mean, maybe he saw the crime scene later or photos before he was questioned and just has a really active imagination. I invented a new ghost bird earlier out of nothing. He could have easily crafted a plausible story about what happened. Maybe it's like just that's his way of rationalizing what happened. Like, if he can organize the event in his own head, he won't have as much anxiety about it. And it certainly seems possible that Bridget could have been the perpetrator or at least helped Lizzie in some way. However, this is again just speculation as there wasn't enough physical evidence to really prove anything. She did eventually catch herself a husband and moved to Montana though. Bridget died in 1948 and allegedly confessed to changing her story on the stand to help Lizzie while on her deathbed. As for Lizzie, she changed her name to Lizbeth to distance herself from what happened, which did not work at all. She still looked exactly the same, so that didn't really help her with regaining her popularity. Neither did that one time she was maybe caught stealing in 1897 from a store in Rhode Island. You know, I've been caught stealing. Once. When I was five. That one's Jane's addiction. She was pretty much ostracized from the rest of the hill, except for maybe with one person. She managed to cultivate a close friendship with aspiring actress Nance O'Neill, real name Gertrude Lampson. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Nance does, does it? However, those two were prone to throwing wild parties, and in 1905, Emma had enough of dealing with Elizabeth and Nance's tomfoolery. An argument took place, which prompted Emma to move away, and she never saw Lizzie again. Lizzie, excuse me, Lizbeth died in 1927 after coming down with pneumonia. She never quite kicked all the way back out after some trendy gallbladder surgery the previous year. Gave up the ghost on June 1st. Gallbladder just fell right out of her and she died. I don't think that happened. Then nine days later, her sister Emma must have wanted to see her sister again as she passed away in a nursing home over in New Hampshire. And those two were buried side by side in the family grave plot right next to my dad. Haha, <laughs> that one's Lonely Island, a really obscure song from them. I'm a grown-ass man! <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. That's the kind of nonsense that brought me this far, and it's fun. Speaking of my nonsense, I actually do have some awesome news for you in a few minutes. We're almost done here, hold on. Actually, the main story is pretty much over. Everybody's dead, and we still can't say with any certainty who for sure killed the Bordens, but before this week, I was still under the impression that Lizzie for sure did it and was punished for it, so I learned something at least. There's also a lot of theories about Lizzie possibly being in a lesbian relationship with either Bridget or Alice or both of them, but that theory didn't surface until around 1984 when author Ed McBain proposed it in a book that he wrote called Lizzie. The theory goes that either Abby or Andrew caught Lizzie and Bridget in some sort of situation together and that's what prompted the murders and could be why the stories don't quite line up. Seems like it was more just like a sensationalist theory to generate book sales. A couple of murderous lesbians got away with one of the most sensationalized crimes of all time. Hell yeah, book sales, here I come. It also doesn't matter if they were lesbians or not. Abby and Andrew still got hacked to death by somebody in that house. You could tell the same story without mentioning that they were maybe lesbians, and it's still pretty much the same story anyway, which is why I left it for right here, because, like, who fucking cares? Another thing I learned, this is the advice corner section part now, um, I often fall victim to the rabbit hole in strange and interesting ways. One way is that I often find myself relying on comment sections and reddit threads as, and other things as, like, a direct reflection of the rest of society's opinions on things. 
That is 99% of the time, at least in my experience, not the case. What's more often the case is that the most popular comment just becomes a springboard for similar comments to copy, and the rest is just an echo chamber of useless text. So if you consume as much content as I do, just keep that in mind. One thing I do love, though, is watching the gradual degradation of civility in YouTube threads. Like, watch any video on evolution or something similar, whatever, you can find exactly what I'm talking about. It's crazy how quickly it can go from Here's my arguments with some facts to support it, along with some others, so that you can have the same information that I do and form your own opinion. And then the very next comment will be something like, SHUT THE FUCK UP YOU TINY WIENER HAVE AN OGRE BABY! Like, it's ridiculous. It's an endless source of entertainment, and you should try it. Don't participate, though. Just observe. It loses its magic if you interact with them. Don't feed the trolls. Also, a spinster is basically a woman that's past her prime in the world of marriage material. Wanted to throw that in earlier, but I forgot to. That is my advice to you this week. Go forth and watch trolls fight on YouTube if you get bored. After you listen to this. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I have some awesome news for you all. Well, too bad. I'm keeping it to myself for another week. Ha <laughs> ha! Just kidding. Um, it's still also very new to me as well. In fact, I'm still kind of trying to process it, but I'm joining a network! That means I'll be able to find a lot more opportunities for growth and development, and I would not have been able to make it this far without you all out there clicking on that button every week. However many of you there are, I honestly have no idea, but... I kind of like the idea of a phantom audience, so it makes it more fun for a little while. What does that mean for the show? For you and your listening experience, probably not much. I think there will be some network stuff in the beginning, but for the most part, you can just expect some general improvements in the near future. I'm going to leave it at that for now, since I don't know a whole lot else, but hopefully it will make itself apparent very soon. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. It really does mean a lot. If you like that story, the way I tell stories, or just like the sound of my voice, please help me get to my new goal of 10 iTunes reviews. That's not a whole lot. I think I'm at like 5 right now, so that would be immensely helpful, and it doesn't cost you anything. Oh shit, um, really quickly, I couldn't find a way to shoehorn it in earlier, but there is a Lizzie Borden rock opera, and it is incredible and very catchy. Ow! cat claws in my knee. That's where that line, there's no wedding bells in the house of Borden came from, is from that rock opera, or it's where I heard it first. So you should go check that out. It's pretty fun. As for me, I've got to go prepare for the rest of my week and find the next story that I'd like to try and tell you. So have a good week, everybody. Make smart choices and stay kind. Bye!